Let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter number 1 this morning. Matthew chapter number 1, what a privilege it is to get to be in the house of God this morning and to get to be here with you. I trust that you've come to hear from the Lord today and uh, looking forward to what the Lord will do tonight, but uh, excited about what He's going to do this morning as well. So let's have our hearts set upon Him this morning. Matthew chapter number 1, this is a very familiar passage of Scripture, especially around this time of year. A lot of times we read it and remind our family about it and so on and so forth. And so I want to read this to you this morning and uh, say a few things about uh, a truth that we find in this passage of Scripture. Matthew chapter number 1, and let's begin reading in verse number 18. Matthew chapter number 1. Verse number 18, the Bible says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's stop there and pray. Lord, we love you this morning. Thank you for letting us be in this place. It's by your mercy and grace that we are found here today. Lord, I pray you'd help us to have our hearts set upon you, the truth of who you are and your word. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to hear with clarity in our ears, in our hearts, and our minds this truth from your word. I do not know the heart's condition of any person here. But, Lord, I do know two things. I do know that you know each heart here. And I know that irrespective of the condition of that heart, we can all be helped by the truth that we find in your word today. So I pray that the Holy Spirit of God would do his office work in administering and applying the word of God to hearts. May we just be found in obedience unto you this morning. Lord, we love you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to notice with me this morning, verse number 21. The angel says to Joseph that Mary shall bring forth a son. And that son was not to have just any incidental name or any unimportant name. But the angel gives a name that she is to name her child and says this. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. You know, names are a fascinating study, both in life and in the Word of God. Most names have some semblance of, of meaning to them. Uh, my name is Toby, and uh, the word Toby really don't mean anything. Amen? Uh, it can mean a lot of things, depending on the crowd you're in. But a lot of people ask me, they say, is your name Toby? I say, yes, it is. And uh, they say, well, there's two things I always hear. One thing I invariably hear, somebody in the crowd will always say, I had a dog named Toby. And I don't know if they mean that. People love their pets. Maybe they mean that as a compliment. I don't know. It always falls a little funny. I've never done it. I'm too kind of a person. 
But I've always wanted to reply to them, whatever their name is, if their name's Jennifer, to say, it's funny, I had a kidney stone with your name, amen? <laughs> Just see how people responded. But, um, yeah, you can hear my mother talking. And my mother saying that I was named after a character in a book. I was. Me and my brother both actually were. Uh, we were both named. His name is John Tyler. My name is Toby Ryan Bond Weber. And, and uh, there was a book. Some of y'all may have read it before about Toby Tyler. Anybody ever heard of that book? The book Toby Tyler. Did you ever read anything like that? Uh, I don't know. And I'm not a big subscriber in modern day psychological uh, perspective, but there's got to be something damaging about naming your child after a little boy that runs away from home from his family to join the circus. Amen. I don't listen. Men that men with with higher rates than me are going to have to un, unravel that knot. But uh, no, my name. People will often ask me. They'll say, "Well, is your name Tobias?" It's not. My name on my birth certificate is Toby. They'll say, "Is your name Tobijah?" You know, Tobijah is a biblical name. And I'll say, no, my name is Toby. If it was Tobias, it'd mean something. If it was Tobijah, it would mean God is good. Uh, but Toby just means me. There's not really a lot of significance to it. Um, Tyler's name actually means something. It's a person that's a tile maker. Amen. And uh, I don't know what Toby makes. Toes, maybe. I have no idea. But But most names carry with them some weight and significance. They have some definition and some significance. And, you know, that's particularly true in the Bible. When you study names in the Bible, you'll find that very often the names that are that are highlighted and very often people's names would be changed by the Lord himself or sometimes by the people around them to reflect God's working in their life. And so names have great significance in the Bible. For instance, the name Abraham, it means father of many. That's fascinating. God gave him that name when he didn't have any children. But God named him father of a multitude or father of many. And of course, we know that he would become the father of what we knows the Jewish nation. The name Elijah, the prophet of God. His name, it means my God is Jehovah. Well, it's a good name for a man living in a time of steep idolatry. Every time that he went somewhere and told his name, he was letting people know my God is Jehovah. The name Samuel, it means heard of God. You remember Hannah names her child because she had prayed. She says, for this child I prayed. The Lord hath heard and answered my petition. And so she names him Samuel. It means heard of God. Boys like the name Ezekiel. It's a strong name in the Bible. And in fact, the name Ezekiel means God strengthens. And so names in the Bible, and I've just mentioned a few, but all through the Bible you'll find names to have great significance. But when I read my Bible, I am arrested by the thought that there is no name that is greater than the name that we've read in our text this morning. The name Jesus. The name Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. It is a New Testament rendition or, or uh, pronunciation, we might say, of the Old Testament named Joshua. Interesting, in fact, there's a passage in Hebrews that talks about how Jesus did not give them rest. You may be confused by that, but that's not talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's talking about Joshua saying even when they went into the land, they didn't have rest. There remaineth a rest for the people of God. And the rest that the human Jesus could not give or the earthly Jesus could not give, the God-man Jesus Christ can give. Amen. And so the name Jesus is of great significance. It means Jehovah is salvation. When I read this passage, there are three things that immediately jump out to me. And I want to mention them, and then I want to say a few things about what 
God's name is important. Let me say, number one this morning, that this name Jesus applied to the Son of God, the what we call the second person of the Trinity, not in any way diminished from the Father, but as we describe them, we'll call them the second person of the Trinity. The name Jesus, it is, number one, a name of divine proclamation. You say, preacher, what do you mean? Well, it wasn't just a name that Mary and Joseph chose. They didn't flip through a, through a, 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 a baby name book or, or name him after the waitress at the Quincy's or anything. I mean, it was a divine name. It was a name that was given by God Himself to reflect some spiritual truth. Now, I don't believe in any sort of mysticism as claiming that any sort of auditory or stringing together of vowels or anything of that sort has any mystical power. And certainly you can go all over the world and find plenty of people that are named Jesus today who bear no imprimatur of God on their life and they're certainly not the the Son of God. Uh, But in this case, when God gives this name to this uh, body born of the Holy Ghost, the incarnate Son of God... He is seeking to communicate some important truths. It could not have just been any name. It had to be this name. It was a name of divine proclamation. By the way, that's why so many people that would suggest, well, it really don't matter what you call God. No, it does matter what you call God. It absolutely matters what you call God. You want to be called by your right name. God wants to be called by His right name. Beyond that, equating the God of all myriad of pagan religions with the God of the Bible and just suggesting that the only distinction uh, is their name is both dishonest and foolish. No, the God of the Bible is is Jehovah. The God of the Bible is is manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the, the triune God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And it matters what we call Him. It's a name of divine proclamation. But then I would say, number two, it is a name of divine revelation. Now, by that, I mean two things. I mean that the person that bore that name would reveal some things about God and who He is. But I also mean that the name itself, being significant in its choice, reveals some important truths about God, His heart, His desire, and His plan for humanity. Could have been named Jesus or Jehovah is judgment. And God is certainly a God of judgment. But instead, when he sent his son into this world, he said, name him Jehovah is salvation. What a merciful God we have. What a precious God we have. He could have named him Jehovah is holiness, and it would have been true. He could have named him Jehovah is judgment, and it would have been true. He could have named him Jehovah is wrath, and it would have been true. But he said, name him Jehovah is salvation. God was seeking to communicate some things. But then we find as we read through the testimony of Scripture that this name begins to carry a weight and a significance to it. Now, not because of the assembly of letters or of vowels and how they are interacted with, but because of the person that bore this name. We find that this name is a powerful name. We find that in Scripture this name had the ability to raise the dead. This name had the ability to give strength to legs that, that were, that were non-functioning. This name had the ability to give voice to those that had no ability to speak and to give sight to those that were blind. And then the greatest, the miracle of all miracles is that this name had the ability to take a lost, broken, wayward, hopeless sinner and raise him to walk in spiritual life. I would say it this way. It is a name of divine demonstration. And as we read through Scripture, we find that this name is not an insignificant name. It is not an incidental name. 
But in fact, this name is the most important name that any person has ever born throughout human history. I want to tell you four things about this name, and then we'll be done this morning. You say, preacher, what is the significance of the name Jesus? Why does God name his child Jesus? Why it is imperative, why is it imperative that we are associated with and acquainted with the name Jesus? Why is this name, why was it important enough for God to send a heavenly uh, embassy, uh, to, to send a, a heavenly company? Why was it necessary for him to send Gabriel himself to pronounce to Joseph this name? Why this name? I would say, number one this morning, That this name's important because this name declares his identity. Now, it's interesting to note that there are plenty of people in the Old Testament whose names invoked names of God. We read a few of them this morning. Elijah, my God, is Jehovah. And you see uh, that uh, that appendage to the end, uh, that addendum to the end of that name, A-H. And that is very often indicative of the name Jehovah. Often when you see the two letters E-L, not every time, but often when you see them in a name, they are indicative of the Old Testament, what we might call the generic name of God, of Elohim, His Creator name. And so Elijah, His name means my God is Jehovah. He is invoking the name of God. Samuel heard of God. He is invoking the name of Elohim or of God. Ezekiel, God strengthens. He is invoking the name of God. Isaiah with the A-H, salvation is of Jehovah or comes from Jehovah. In other words, all of these names invoke the name of God. So why is the name Jesus different? Why is it significant? Because it did not merely evoke the concept of God, for him it identified him with the person of God. He is not merely a prophet, a preacher, a teacher. He is not just merely some sort of community organizer or social agitator. But he is God in the flesh. To believe anything less is heresy and to fall short of heaven. A man cannot go to heaven believing Jesus is anything less than God. It is a fundamental of biblical Christianity. What does this name mean and reflect to us? Jehovah is salvation. Well, why was he named Jehovah's salvation? Because he is the expression or he is the revelation of Jehovah to humanity. All throughout the Old Testament, mankind could have all sorts of concepts and perspectives biblically rooted, uh, certainly, of who God is. But man never could gaze upon God in the fullness that he did when he saw Jesus until Jesus came. Never could man look upon God in the way that we could when Jesus came. Never could man study God in the way that man could whenever Jesus came and revealed who God was. Let me say two things that this name reminds us of about who Jesus is. And I would say this, that who you believe Jesus is, is the most important opinion or perspective that you have in your life. You can be wrong about all sorts of things. I'm wrong about things on a regular basis. I'm getting pretty good at it. I'm wrong about things all the time, but you better not be wrong about who He is. Who is he, preacher? Well, I would say, number one, this morning, he is the express image of God's person. He's the express image of God's person. That's biblical language, and we'll get there in a moment. But let me just say it in in, in real simple hillbilly. He's God manifest. 
brought into the light where mankind can gaze upon Him and behold Him. There are instances in the Old Testament where mankind sees God's glory. There's an instance very mysterious where Moses sees the backside of God. If you want my opinion, and I know that's what you came here for this morning, but if you want my opinion, I believe those are examples of what we would call theophanies or Christophanies. You say, preacher, why do you believe that? Because the New Testament says abundantly clear that no man has seen God at any time. No man has seen God at any time. So evidently what Moses saw when he saw the backside of the Lord is he's not seeing the the Trinity in its fullness, but he is obviously seeing one person of the Trinity. Has he seen the Father? Well, I don't know. We'll get to heaven and argue about that. No, we won't argue then because uh, you'll find out I'm right and all the arguing be done. Amen. But it's my opinion that he is seeing a theophany there on Mount Sinai. But what we do know is this. That in the New Testament, when God robes himself in flesh and begins to walk amongst mankind, that God is brought into the light in a way that humanity had never experienced before. Let me just read some scripture to you. It can say it better than I can. John chapter number 1 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And verse 14, lest we wonder what all that means, says this, And the Word was made flesh, and dwelt among us. Now, a person might read that and get up to that point and say, well, reckon wonder who that's talking about. The Word was made flesh. It was tabernacled among us. It was manifest to us. Where? How? Preacher, where do I go to see this? How can I, how can I interact with this? How can I know what it's talking about? Well, here the Holy Ghost don't leave us wondering. He says, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father of grace and truth. That's why it's so important what you do with Jesus Christ because what you're doing with Christ is what you're doing with God. Because Christ is God in the flesh, manifest in the flesh. Now, I don't by any means to su- uh, mean to suggest that He began to exist when He robed Himself in flesh in a manger uh, in Bethlehem or in a virgin's womb. But what I do mean to say is this, that prior to that point, though, He is the second person of the Trinity, is coexistent, co-eternal, and co-equal with God, that He chose to somehow condense and contract the magnitude of His divinity to fit within human flesh and to walk amongst mankind, that man might be able to interact with God and see Him and know Him. He is the Word made flesh. Paul says it this way in 1 Timothy 3, without controversy. It means there ain't no arguing about it. it. means if you're offended by it, you're just going to have to sit over there and be offended by it. Because it's saying, there's all kinds of things in society that are a controversy. But Paul says this isn't a controversy. Anybody that reads their Bible has to recognize this truth, if they're honest. Anybody that thinks for a moment about God and what He's done in humanity has to recognize this. For there to be intellectually honest. Without controversy, he says, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. You see, that little infant that was laid in a manger in Bethlehem was not just an infant, but it was God Himself. I'll go ahead and tell you there are elements of the incarnation that I can't explain, and I'd venture to guess you might not be able to either. And there are things that we may not understand until we get to heaven to understand fully because we lack the capacity. 
but the fundamental truth that God over and over and over and over again in the New Testament hammers into the heart of the reader is that this was no ordinary individual, but this was God Himself. Here's how John 14.9, Jesus Himself said it. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? Now, there's a little bit of background here. Philip, he says, show us the Father and it sufficeth us. Show us more, show us more. There's still people today wanting somebody to show them more, show them more, show them more. Jesus said, I've been walking amongst you. I've been living amongst you, Philip. I've been talking about it. How is it possible? Do you not know who I am? He says, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father. How sayest thou then, show us the Father? He is God manifest in the flesh. He is the express image of God. Hebrews chapter 1 says this, God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son, whom He hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person. Now, what does that mean? Let's just stop there. I wasn't going to preach. I was just going to read Scripture today and and let the Lord... but, but, But let me preach for a moment there. What does that mean to be an express image? You know, we got a copier upstairs. Sometimes it works when it wants to. And, 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 but, you know, one of the things that you'll find is if you make a copy and then make a copy of a copy and then make a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy and then make a copy of 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 a copy, that the more copies that are intervening betwixt the two, the more distorted the image will become. Now, what does it mean that he is the express image? Y'all gonna call me a heretic when I say this. And some of y'all understand it, some of, some of y'all won't. But you know, in digital imaging, it ain't like it is when you're making physical copies. When you make a physical copy, there is a loss of quality. But in digital imaging, if you make a copy, there's typically, hopefully, with a good program, there's no loss of image quality. To look at one is to look at the other. He is not the approximate image of the Father. He is not an acceptable image of the Father. He is the express image of the Father. Meaning to look upon Him is to look upon the Father. (laughs) I'm going to read the rest because I like it. When He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, why is it so important, preacher, that he be named Jesus? Because it it declares his identity, that he is not just a human, uh, merely a human, that he is not only human, that he is not just another individual, but that he is, in fact, God, manifest in the flesh, tabernacled in the flesh, communicated in the flesh, the express image of God robed in flesh. It declares his identity. He's the express image of God's person. But number two, he is the focal point of God's plan. Jehovah is salvation. Now, we've already said this morning that to look upon Jesus is to look upon Jehovah. That's not to suggest that there is no significant distinction between the persons of the Trinity. There most certainly are. I'm not advocating what the the theologians would call uh, partialism, that they are sort of like uh, transformers and they all got to bunch together to make a super God. No, they're all God individually distinct. 
Nor am I advocating a concept of what people would call modalism. That they're, they're one God, but just sort of expressed in three different ideas. Sort of like water, right? Can either be liquid or solid or, or gas. No, they are three distinct persons. Each of them completely and entirely God in and of themselves. But gathered together, comprised together. The Bible describes them as the Godhead. There's things I can't explain about that. But what I can understand is this. My Bible teaches me that though we may call him the second person of the Trinity, he is in no light diminished from who we call the the first person of the Trinity or the Father. And so Jehovah is salvation. That means this, that Jesus is salvation. And it means this, that God's plan for salvation was wrapped up in, swaddled together with that babe in a manger. I don't think you understand this. He is not merely the vehicle of God's salvation. He's the point of God's salvation. I mean, He's not just the the avenue through which God saves men. He is the very heart of all of God's dealings with His creation and with humanity and concerning all matters of human interaction. He's the focal point. Let's say it this way. It's all about Him. Here's how the book of Acts describes it. Acts chapter number 2, verse 22. Peter says, Ye men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered uh, by the meanness of men? No. Uh, By the wiles of the devil? No. By the machinations of the Sanhedrin? No. By the way, all those groups had a hand. But who was it that gave his son? Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken him by wicked hands, have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up. It's one of my favorite verses. Having loosed the pains of death. Why? Because it was not possible that he should be holding up. I mean, you understand, this isn't my message this morning. It ain't Easter, but I'm going to say it anyway. Hey, listen, sooner would the grass turn to blue and the sky turn to green. Uh, sooner would the uh, seas begin to burn. Sooner would oxygen itself fall from the sky. Then it would have been possible he would have stayed in that tomb. It was not possible. Say, well, preacher, do we really know if he... I'm going to settle it. It was not possible that he did not raise from the dead. Was not po- doesn't even with, enter within the spectrum of God's inter, uh, of his of his purview. God won't even entertain the notion of it. It is impossible. There is not a world. Some of y'all may be crazy out there believing all these multiverses, like you know, some, I'm somewhere out in society, I'm Chinese or something in some other universe. In, in whatever multiverses that your science fiction brain can dream up, still he would have raised from the dead had that been possible, because it was not possible that he be holding up. Here's what I want you to notice. Peter says, by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Calvary was not an accident and the church is not an audible. It was always God's intention that His Son give His life. Peter would say it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. (laughs) Paul will say it this way when he talks about Calvary and the sacrifice that Christ gave in procuring salvation for us. And he'll say in Philippians 2.9, Wherefore, 
because of what he did in, 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 in robing himself in flesh, condescending to walk amongst man, becoming obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, because of his willingness to do that, because of the performance of that act, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'll tell you this, these people believe that a man can get to heaven without Jesus. Uh, it's comical to think were that true. How miserable they'd be to get there and find out it's all about Him after all. How miserable they'd be to find out that after all, it was all Him the whole time. Can I tell you this? He is not just some auxiliary point. He's not just even some important element of the plan of God. He is the plan of God. He is the plan of God. If you don't know Him, no matter what you know about God or believe yourself to know about God, you don't know God. Because He is who God in the flesh. I would say this. Number one, this name, it declares His identity. Number two, this name, it declares His impoverishment. You say, preacher, I thought this was a high and lofty name. Oh, it is. But it's also a humble and lowly name. This name, Jesus, you think about all the names that are ascribed to our Savior. I was going to write some down and I did not do that. And so instead, I mean, we'll just, we'll just mention a few. He's the Rose of Sharon. He's the man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. He's the root of David. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. (laughs) He is He's the daysman betwixt. <laughs> he is the mediator between God and man. He's the lily of the valley. We could on and on. He's the lamb of God, which take away the sin of the world. And he's the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. He's the lamb that was slain, but yet liveth and standeth at the throne of God at this very moment seated at the right hand of the Father, ever living, making intercession. Oh, by the way, He's the great high priest and the apostle of our profession. He's a lot of things. But when He walked this earth, He was Jesus. You see, Jesus is the name of His humanity. It's the name they would have called Him when they were boys playing out in the yard. It's the name that adults would have called Him and and people around Him would have associated with Him. And it is the first name that his disciples would have known him by. It is his human name. Think about the condescension of this name. That God would have a familiar name. You understand that most of the mystery religions in human history are rooted in the concept that God is an unknowable entity and that his name and his identity is beyond human comprehension. Let me tell you how disconsonant that is with Bible Christianity. God was so interested in you knowing His name that He took a human name. God was so interested in you knowing who He is that He robed Himself in flesh and walked amongst us. God was so interested in you knowing who He is that He died like a common criminal crucified by a robe government. This name, think about the condescension of this name. Paul describes the condescension of the Lord Jesus. In other words, Him leaving the glories of heaven and walking amongst men. And here's how he describes it in 2 Corinthians 8 9. He says, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes, oh boy, for your sakes, put your name there, yet for Toby's sake, yet for Mike's sake, yet for Ken's sake, 
Yet for Zach's sake, what's your name? Put your name there. Yet for your, if you're here lost today, I just want you to know he knows your name and you could put your name there. Yet for your sakes, he became poor that, that ye through his poverty might be rich. He walked amongst men. He hungered. He thirsted. He grew weary. You understand how incompatible that is with his divine nature? Yet he embraced a human nature, not in substitution to his divine nature, but in addition to his divine nature. That he might experience hurt and pain and hunger and cold and weariness. He didn't have to do any of that. But for your sakes, he did it. Here's how Paul describes it. I've often thought this must have been what heaven looked like, what Christmas looked like from heaven. Philippians 2, verse 5, Paul says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You see, you and I, we see the manger. We see the decoration. We, we, we see the, the trees and the tinsel and the bows and the wreaths and the gifts and all the food and the festivities. And I'm not really against any of that. I'm not really against any of that. I'm not against any of that. I'm, no, I'm being serious, Fred. I'm not against any of that. I got a message to preach and I'm going to preach it. But I'm just going to say I'm not against any of that. You say, well, preacher, I am. Well, be against it. Be offended. Be upset. Get scandalized over it. I'm still going to have those things. Oh, my. Who turned your air conditioning on? My soul. Cold air breathed through, didn't it, Brother Charlie? But, you know, if you were to see it from heaven, here's what it would look like. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men. Boy, that's a, man, that's a phrase. Was made in the likeness of men. See, we always think of him as being Jesus, God in the flesh, manifest, incarnate. But you understand that for time eternal in the past, he had not experienced that. But he was made in the likeness of men. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The condescension of that name. You won't understand till you get to heaven how much he gave up to buy you. You won't understand until you see him enthroned in glory how much he gave up to buy you. And to buy me, I think of the condescension of this name. I think of the association of this name. This name reminds me that he willingly chose to associate himself with broken, sinful humanity. I could read hundreds of verses to express this truth, but I'll read two passages. Galatians chapter 4 says this, When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Here's how Paul will say it in the book of Hebrews, chapter number 2. He'll say, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things. You know, you ought to ask yourself sometimes when you read your Bible, why your Bible says what it says. Not just whether it's true or not. You know it's true. But why does it say it? 
For it became Him. For it became Him. For whom are all things. Everything was for Him. And by whom are all things. Everything around He created had the power to create. All those things, it became Him in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both He that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause? He... (laughs) He is not ashamed to call them brethren. I'm ashamed to call some of y'all brethren. (laughs) And I ain't nobody. And I ain't nothing. And my name, if you called me mud, you'd be speaking well relative to what I really am. But the thrice holy, omnipotent, righteous, perfect God, the judge of all the earth, who is so far above us and is so different from us, whose ways are not our ways and whose thoughts are not our thoughts, who we have no ability or right to approach unto in our own merit. He's not ashamed to call them brethren. My soul, what a Christianity we have. My soul, what a salvation we have. I'm going to enjoy myself. Some of y'all still think about Christmas trees. Man, I'm enjoying myself. <laughs> Saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praises unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, Paul's doing a little preaching now. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. For as much then as the children. He, he wants to associate with humanity. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, (laughs) that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. You see, this name reminds me that God wants something to do with humanity. Humanity may not want much to do with God, but God wants much to do with humanity. And as you sit here today, if you don't know the God of glory, it's not because... He is uninterested in you. It is because you are uninterested in Him. And it's not because He will not receive you. It's because you won't receive Him. Declares His, 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 uh, identity. It declares His impoverishment. But then this name, it declares His intentions. Jehovah is salvation. We spoke of this briefly earlier in the message. You probably don't remember because it was three and a half hours ago, but we spoke of this. That he could have, he could have given the name Jehovah is judgment. And that, that'd be true. He's the judge of all the earth. It could have been that, that God, Jehovah is wrath. And he's a wrathful God against unrighteousness. It could have even been, and this would have been a beautiful name because the Lord is beautiful in his holiness, but he could have said Jehovah is holiness, but he didn't. Instead, the name is Jehovah is salvation. Tells us what God wants to do with and for humanity. Reminds me of the pardon that he would procure 
that this one born in the manger, robed, God robed in flesh, walking amongst humanity, came for a purpose. What was that purpose? Well, First John chapter 3 says this, verse 5, you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Ephesians 1, 7 says, In whom, speaking of Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Paul will say in Colossians chapter 1, verse 12, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son, in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Why did Jesus come? He came that men might have salvation, that pardon might be secured, and that men might be redeemed. He came (laughs) to give His life a ransom for many. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Uh, This isn't part of my message, but let me just drop here. Uh, You say, preacher, how how do I do this? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 10.13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You see, that's why you can't be saved without coming to Him. Not just knowing about Him, you have to come to Him. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. Now we've made that real super spiritual, you know, but, but what does it mean to call on somebody's name? Well, what if I called on your name? What if I said, Kenny! And you said, what? And I said, what do you mean, what, Kenny? I'm just calling on your name. That doesn't read right, does it? That's not natural, is it? To call upon the name of is to invoke the help of, to seek the attention of, to desire the salvation of. That's why you have to believe that Jesus rose from the dead if you're going to be saved. Because it's not merely the affirmation of an intellectual concept. It is not merely the the acceptance of a doctrinal position. But rather it is the embracing and accepting of a person and his hand and his help and his salvation. I like what Hebrews 10.10 says. Really, I like what it all says, to be honest. Except things talk about my sin. (laughs) By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all. Once for all. Now my basic, and I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a linguist. I'm not a, I'm not a, a grammar proficient person. I struggle with English. But when I read that passage of scripture, it seems apparent to me that the phrase once for all is not speaking of the offering, but it's speaking of the sanctification. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying when he saves us, he saves us once for all. He don't save us for here in a little while, but he saves us for once for all. I would say this, that this name declares his intentions in the pardon he would procure, but number two, in the price he would pay. You see, salvation, as it's biblically understood, the Bible makes abundantly clear that without the the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. That it's impossible for sins to be dealt with and, and reconciled over and resolved without the shedding of blood. And that's part of the reason, and Mary understood even from a young age, uh, from, from, uh, even from the moment of, of his circumcision, uh, Simeon told her, said, a sword will pierce through your own soul. I don't think she understood everything like she'd understand it later. But I think she did understand this child was born to die and set for death. I believe that she understood from the very beginning that he would in some semblance, in some way, 
have to be the sacrifice of God. And the Bible is abundantly clear that without sacrifice, there can be no remission of sins. Now you say, well, preacher, what is a man to do about that? Can we go and can we sacrifice other individuals? No, you can't because they have their own sin to deal with. Well, preacher, maybe we can go and we can sacrifice animals to God. Maybe that would interest God. But we find this, that the New Testament makes abundantly clear that there remaineth therefore no sacrifice for sins, that the blood of bulls and of goats never made the comer thereunto perfect, because then they would have ceased to have been offered, but that in them there's continually remembrance made of sins every year. And so the blood of bulls and of goats never had the ability to expiate a man's sins or to cleanse a man of his sins. But they always looked uh, forward to a greater sacrifice. You say, preacher, you think them Old Testament saints looked all the way forward to Calvary? No, I don't think they necessarily understood that. But I think God, when He structured the sacrifices of the Old Testament, He knew what He would do. And they stayed the judgment of God year by year, but they never really reconciled or resolved a man's sin problem. And that's why it's so significant when John, the next day, seeth Jesus coming and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God... That meant something to him. He knew what that meant when he said that. He wasn't saying, oh, bless his heart, cute as a little lamb that that fella is. One, that's a weird way to talk about your cousin. If you talk about your cousin that way, you need counseling. Both of the pastoral and of the professional variety. But no, he understood what he was saying. The Lamb of God. There's, There's God's sacrifice. There's the blood God's looking for. There's the life God's looking for. There's the answer God's looking for. Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. The price He would pay, it would be His own life. All we like sheep have gone astray. have turned everyone to His own way, but the Lord hath laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He is our sacrifice. Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give His life a ransom for many. Hebrews 9.26 says this, For then must he have often suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Romans chapter 3 verse 24 says, Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation. That's a big old $10 New Testament word. What it means is the payment. The payment. We can talk about the significance between the Old Testament word atonement and kafar and the New Testament word propitiation and the covering of sin or the cleansing of sin. But fundamentally at its heart, you know what propitiation means. It means a payment, a payment, a sacrificial payment to be the propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. John would say it this way in 1 John 2, 2, he is the propitiation, not he's a propitiation. He is the propitiation. There is no propitiation apart from Him. He is the only propitiation. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. See, this name Jesus is sal- or Jehovah is salvation, it reminds me of His intentions, the pardon. If God was going to save mankind, then somebody would have to effectuate that. And Jesus, He procured that pardon. But how did He do that? Well, a price had to be paid for our sin debt, for our transgressions against God. So He paid that sin debt for us. But there's a final thought that occurs to me, and that's that this name declares His individuality. I told you earlier that there's all over the world people by the name of 
Jesus. Some of them may be good fellows. Some of them may even be saved, be born again people. I trust that's true. It's a very common name. It was at this time, the name Joshua was. And, 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 you know, even today, there's people undoubtedly, maybe under the sound of my voice, that's your name, maybe a first name, a middle name. It's a very common name. But you see, it is not the name in some sort of weird, uh, you know, pagan mystic uh, cantation that bears significance. It is not your saying of that name that secures some kind of spiritual power or credibility. You know, the New Testament's abundantly clear about the folly of that. The New Testament describes men, seven sons of Siva, vagabond Jews, who meet a devil-possessed man, and they decide they're going to play tent evangelist. They decide they're going to play Hollywood exorcist. So they, they run up on him and they said, we rebuke you in the name of Jesus whom Paul preached. And those devils just looked at him and said, who are you? I'm sorry, I don't, I've not heard of you. This is how they said it. Jesus, we know. And Paul, we know. But who art thou? In other words, seeking to invoke the name of Jesus as some sort of imprecation, as some sort of cantation is pagan. It's, it's mysticism. It's not biblically rooted. There's no scriptural foundation for it. Uh, were that the case, imagine how powerful all these Joshua's would be running around or Jesus's running around society. No, it's not the mystical assembly of vowel sounds. It's the person of Jesus. It's who He is. There's been a lot of Joshua's, but there's never been one like Him. There's been a lot of Jesus's, but never been one like Him. There's been a lot of people, but there's never been one like Him. I would say two things about it. One, He is the only Savior of men. He is the only Savior of men. Paul would write to young Timothy, shoring, encouraging him, fortifying him in his ministry. And he would drive this nail to him. He'd say, Timothy, there is one God. He said, you're, you're ministering in a pagan place, Timothy. But there's one God. There's not a bunch. There's one. And Timothy, there is one mediator between God and men. There's not a hundred ways to heaven. There's not, it's not buffet, it's, it's, it's not Burger King, it's not have it your way, it's not what interests you. There is one way. There is one mediator between God and men. What's that way? The man, Christ Jesus. Why is that? Who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. There's only one Savior of men. Jesus himself said this in John 14, 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father. But by me. Boy, that puts it square in, in, in clear territory. You're going to come to God. You're going to have to come by Jesus. There is no other way. And whatever God you approach unto apart from Jesus is not the God of the Bible. I understand there's no multitude of gods. But I'm saying in a person's fantasy, in their mind, in their imagined theology, they say, well, I can get to heaven without God. You couldn't get to, to I can get to heaven without Jesus. You couldn't get to God's heaven without Jesus. Because there's only one way. <laughs> Peter said it pretty pretty plainly in Acts chapter number 4, verse 10. He said, Be it known unto you all and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders. You think I preach? Listen to that. Some of y'all, you're still, you're trying to pray for God to give you deliverance from my Christmas tree comments. But listen to that. He said, this is the stone that was set at naught of you builders. 
He says, you rejected him and you crucified him. That's what he says to this crowd. He says, it's by this man. This is the stone which was set in out of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Uh, some of y'all said, I'll preach. I learned this in elementary school. If you really learned it, you'd be enjoying it as much as anybody. He's the only Savior of men. But then I would say in closing, He's the only source of peace. See, if He's the only Savior of men, He is the only source of peace. People have funny ideas about peace. We think of it as a settledness of mind. Certainly, it can produce that. But peace in regards to two individuals or two entities always has to do with a coming to terms and a reconciliation. And so if a man is to have peace in his life, he must have peace with the Lord. You can't have peace in your life without having peace with the Lord. And I would say this, there's only one man that can give you peace with the Lord. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Only one person. Paul would say this in Romans 5, 1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, if you're not justified by faith, you have no peace with God. You may feel okay about it, but you don't have peace with God. You may have peace outside of God in the sense of some settledness of mind rooted in a seared conscience and an indifference to your eternal state, but you don't have peace with God except by faith in Jesus Christ. Being justified, set at a right position with God. He's the source of peace with God. But then I would say this to you this morning. He's the source of peace in God. Paul would say this in Philippians 4, 6, be careful for nothing. Some of y'all is good at that. Some of these kids are good at that. But here's what it means. It says, don't be full of care. Be careful for nothing. That's something to say right there. We're at the home stretch. Don't get froggy on me right now. Be careful for nothing. Paul says, there ain't nothing worth worrying about. He says, what should I do, preacher? He said, do this, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. It doesn't say get an answer from God. It says, let your requests be made known unto God. It doesn't say break through in the victory of transformative prayer. It says, let your requests be, and just tell them about it. Preacher, I don't know how to fix it. You don't have to to have peace. Just tell them about it. Preacher, I don't know what it's going to look like. You don't have to know. Just tell them about it. Let your requests be made known unto God. And here's what will happen. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. You see, there's only one person you can get peace in your life from. If you're lost here today, there's only one person that can give you peace. He is our peace. That's what Paul said. He is our peace. If you want peace with God, you're going to have to come to Him. Because he is the only terms upon which you can have peace with God. And if you're here saved today, it's supposed to be a time of peace on earth, goodwill towards men. And we all get together as family and argue and fuss and fight, don't we? Happy holidays. (laughs) You might be saved here and you say, preacher, I want peace in my life. How can I have that? Well, here's what Paul said. Now, the Lord of peace himself give you peace always. By all means, the Lord be with you all. Some of those means I don't like how he gives me peace. But he's the one that can give peace. 
If you want peace in your life, you're going to have to come to Him. You want peace from anger, you're going to have to come to Him. You want peace from disappointment, you're going to have to come to Him. You want peace from frustration, you're going to have to come to Him. You want peace with God, you're going to have to come to Him. You want peace over your mistakes and failures, your sins and disobedience, you're going to have to bring them to Him. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, He's not just God in the flesh. He's the Prince of Peace. And He's the only source of peace. And He is our peace. He is the Lord of peace. And He is altogether peace. So I'd ask you this morning, what do you think about this Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of men? Have you made your mind up about Him? I've made my mind up about Him. I've received Him as my Savior. And I found Him to be more than even what He promised me He was. More than even what the best preachers could tell me He was. More than even what my broken imagination could think that He was. He's more. He's more. He's more. And He's more than what you even know Him to be. If you'll come to Him, you'll find that out today. And if you're here today with a troubled life, or a troubled mind, or a troubled heart, I'd advise you as a saved individual, if you know the Lord, come to the Lord of peace and let Him speak peace to your heart and your life. Let's bow together this morning. Musicians going to come and play and the altar is open. And I just invite you to come. You know, you don't have to wait for the first note to be played. You can just meet the Lord in this altar. In fact, it'd be good if you didn't wait. If you wait, you might lose your nerve. God's dealing with your heart. Move now. Just find a place in this altar. Come to Him. And seek from Him the peace, the strength, the help that only He can give. If my family's going to have peace, it's going to have to come from the Lord. If my heart's going to have peace, it's going to have to come from the Lord. If my home is going to have peace, it's going to have to come from the Lord. If our church is going to have peace, it's going to have to come from the Lord. If my marriage is going to have peace, it's going to have to come from the Lord. He's the Lord of all peace. Won't you come to Him this morning? Father, bless this invitation. And may it magnify the precious Son of God. In His name we ask.